I was listening to those songs that we just sang, and I'm like, we don't believe that. We don't like change, do we? (laughs) And when God changes us through his word and through his spirit, things get a bit uncomfortable, don't they? But it's my prayer this morning that what we sang about I, I surrender, that's exactly what we allow God to do through his word this morning. Take God's word, turn to Mark chapter 14. For those that are visiting with us, we started a series last week on transformational generosity. And well, much of the contact has to do with giving of money because money is one of the key idols of our culture. And it's through scripture to prove these points. It's so much more than just our bank accounts and our stuff. And last week, the overarching premise that we gave was this. If Christ is enough, we would be living very differently. See, we're defined by Christ, not by our circumstances. There's a story of a dollar bill talking to a $20 bill while they're waiting to be destroyed. $20 bill said, I had a great life. I had been to France. I had been to Japan, Africa, several cruises. I've been to all 50 states. Dollar bill said, well, I found my way into churches. Did a short stint in the Catholic church, went to the Lutheran, Anglican, but I ended up most of my life in the Baptists. $20 bill looked at the $1 bill and says, wait a minute. What's a church? (laughs) Ooh. That's bad, isn't it? We have to learn to live free from the tyranny of getting. We talked about that last week. Money, reputation, stuff, the applause of everyone around us. Because if we don't, then we live in a very shallow, anemic life. And we settle for the world's version of life. Not for what God has designed, not for what God sees. Now, last week, I mentioned about Cecil the Lion and the outrage over that, contrasting that with the lack of outrage over Planned Parenthood, you know, selling baby parts for research. And some more videos came out this week, and they're still trying to block it. And the last video is that graphic, what they did. I cannot even show it here this morning. And I sit back and I analyze this, and I sit there and I say, are we so obsessed with politics and personalities and celebrities that we're bored with the details of life, death, and selling baby bodies for profit? Are we so bored with the absolute disregard for human life? You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. And all the arguments that we have For the whole abortion industry usually come from the 1%. Mom's life's in danger. They talk about rape. And in a moment, I want to show a video. But let me give a little background to this video. Because to me, it's a video of of redemption. It's a video of hope. And let me tell you that the key premise this morning for me is this. That God looks at things very differently. Than we do. In fact, God views everything very differently 
than we do. I'm going to show you this video, and up front there might be some language you don't understand. They're going to talk about a trick baby. A trick baby is a baby that's born to a prostitute that gets pregnant. And this story happens to deal with a 16-year-old girl who was in the white slave trade who had this baby. Let's watch the video. And at age 16, she got pregnant. We call it having a trick baby. Two strangers meet for a business transaction, and there's a mistake. The pimp said, you can't make any money having a baby in the oven. We have got to kill this baby. They kicked her in the stomach. They fed her alcohol. They gave her drugs. They took a hanger and stabbed the baby over and over again. But the baby would not die. The baby was born two months premature with no pancreas, a learning disability, a bladder too small, unable to function, a severe stutterer. We call it a trick baby. Nobody wants the baby. No hope, no future. Kill it was the word. That baby was me. I'm the lowest of the low. I come from the guttermost. I come from a hellish condition. And so when I would go to school, I couldn't talk. I stuttered so severely from the trauma. My mother had a madam who hated men. Her name was Dolores, and she was a sadist. And when she would watch me, she would take a broomstick and stick it in a place where no boy should have any object in his body. And when you are tortured like that, you learn four things. Don't talk. Don't trust don't feel and pretend nothing is happening. And by age 10, I had had enough. I wanted to die. And in my school, they put me in a boiler room with other kids who were dysfunctional like me, where we would finger paint all day long. And yet there was a teacher, thank God for her, who had a Gideon Bible, and she came to my school, and she saw kids like me as her mission field. And she would give me this Gideon Bible and read to me stories of dysfunctional characters who God used. She would say to me, Ronaldo, God uses greatly those who have been wounded very deeply. He will turn your pain into power, your wounds into wisdom. She had me read the story of Moses, who was also a stutterer. I began to understand that God did love a trick baby, even as low as I was. There was hope for me and possibility. And when a child begins to understand the love of God and the power of his word and the possibilities, it changes everything. How can a young man keep his way clean by taking heed according to your word? Your word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. I began to memorize the Bible, that Gideon Bible, reading 2,000 scriptures. And when you put that kind of word in a life, something begins to happen. My stuttering went away. I stopped wetting the bed. I stood tall. I became valedictorian, became a pastor and priest until everybody in my family got saved. Why? Because somebody placed the Gideon Bible in a woman's hand that changed a life forever. Yes! I was born a trick baby, but the trick was on the devil because of you and the power of the word of God. 
I could almost just sit down and not say anything else, right? But I won't. God can and will transform anyone. In our society, we say that kind of baby will never amount to anything. We have all our human rationality, but God views everything and everyone differently than we do. Amen? And if you're here, I hope that was a story of redemption and hope for you. No matter who you've been, where you've been, God will transform your life. Now, before I get into the content this morning, I don't want you to miss out on something that's going to happen next week. Anybody know who Randy Travis is? Raise your hand. Anybody know Randy Travis? Youth are saying, Randy who? <laughs> you got to be country western, and you got to be a little old, right? What if I told you through a set of situations and circumstances that can only be explained as a God deal that Randy's going to be with us next week? Would you like that? And after church, he's going to give a sacred concert. So if you want to stay around. Now, you also need to know, and this is just full disclosure, that all the extra lighting and sound and staging, things like that, it's going to probably cost around $50,000. Is that okay? Country Western fans are saying, oh, that's cheap. Anybody else saying, no, that's just way too much. Now, honoring full disclosure, I did begin this by saying, what if? Did you get it? What if? It's not going to happen, people. I said, what if? You, did you catch that little phrase, what if? Now, think about that, and then let's listen to this story. Mark 14, beginning in verse 1. You'll see the point. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. I mean, these are nice Christian people, right? <laughs> and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... He was reclining at the table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, pure nard, very costly. We're going to find out later, but very costly, it was about a year's salary. She broke it, the flask, and poured it over his head. Now, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, about a year's salary, and given to the poor. And what'd they do? They scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Now again, think of this premise. God views everyone and everything differently than we do. And let's be honest. Most of us would be on the disciple side of the equation. Most of us would sit there and say, in our humanity, we'd sit there and say, spending a year's salary on a single act of worship, even like bringing Randy Travis in. We would have done the whole, she could have given it to the poor thing. And you notice, it's always how someone else spends their money, 
We do the whole compassion on the poor thing, not when we spend it. But Jesus says she has done a beautiful thing. The word beautiful means noble, worthy, valuable. So this was valuable to him. Jesus obviously sees differently than we do. Amen? Now let's look at another story. Mark chapter 12. Just go a few chapters back. Verse 41. Mark 12, 41. We're just kind of doing an overlay of Scripture to realize Jesus really looked at a lot of situations differently than we do. Verse 41, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had all she had to live on. Now, if I made a suggestion this morning that we take another offering and you take every single dollar and coin that you have in your possession and you put it in the plate. Now, let's be honest. Your affirmation or disgust of that would be based upon how much you brought this morning. Amen? What if I told you we're going to take another offering next week and I want you to empty all your checking and savings accounts out? Again, based upon how much you have in those would elevate your disgust or affirmation. What if the week after that I said, you know what? We're going to empty out all our investments. Everything, gold, silver, anything we have anywhere around the world, we're going to give it one massive offering. There would be cries to crucify the pastor because he's gone mentally unstable. Amen? Now, let's be honest again. It's really weird for us to realize Jesus watched close enough to see who was putting what in. I mean, that's just strange to us. I mean, we do everything to hide what we give. But let me share this with you. Do, you. do you realize that what you give is clearly visible to the only one that matters? <coughs> but we're trying to hide it from everybody else. But Jesus here doesn't applaud the heavy hitters who were generous out of their abundance. He commends the one who put in everything. What was in her savings, checking, investments, which she didn't have. Now, here's the first principle I want to talk about this morning. Generosity is a lifestyle. It's who we are, just not what we do. Our doing flows out of our being, not we simply do generous things. And if you're not generous with what you have, you will never be generous with what you do not have. If you're not generous with your time, you're not going to be generous with your money. If you're not generous with your words, you're not going to be generous with your attitude. It is a lifestyle. It's pervasive. It's who we are. And tying this to last week, if you're not content with what you have, do you realize you're not going to be content with who you are? And it doesn't matter how much more you get. It will never, never, never be enough. That's why 78% of NFL players 
in spite of their multi-million dollar salaries, are bankrupt at the end of their playing career. It's a lifestyle. And if GBC is going to have this generosity in its DNA, then I, as your pastor, better live it. I'm surprised I didn't get a bunch of amens on that one. <laughs> you know, they talk about the speed of the followers equal to the speed of the leader. Paul says it this way. Follow me as I follow Christ. But we have to get beyond this mindset of stuff. As I said before, one cannot be generous with time and talents and not money. And may I use an old Lancaster County term? If you're tight with your money, then you're going to be tight with everything else. (laughs) Generosity is a way of life. With our money, with our stuff, with our words, with our work. With what happens when we're faced with unjust situations. Now let me explain that a little bit because last week I wrote a blog called Let It Go. And in that I talked about being generous with our attitudes and forgiveness, mainly. And when I sit down and listen to people and look at the American church, I'm absolutely convinced that most people are Shallow and toxic in their faith because they hold on to things they should not hold on to, and it poisons their souls, which in turn makes the relationships toxic. Jesus was in conversation with the disciples, and he's he's telling stories like he always does, and he told one about forgiveness, and Peter comes along and says, Well, should I forgive seven times? And Peter was really being generous because in Jewish tradition you could you were required to forgive three times. After that, it was over. So he kind of multiplied that times two and added one. But Jesus comes along and says, no, not seven times, but 77 times. And the point is not the number. The point Jesus makes is that we need to live a life of generous forgiveness. Because when we hold on to offenses, it destroys our faith. The pastor, you say, you you don't know what they said to me and, and how much they stole from me. You don't know how mean they've been to me. And to that I simply say, are you sinless and have you been nailed to a cross yet? My point's this. Offenses will come and go. And the longer you live, the more you will be offended. We live in a fallen world. And if you do not forgive, Your mind and your heart will become toxic. And you will allow your history to define your destiny. And you'll blame and you'll accuse and you'll pout and you'll whine and you'll get angry at God and everyone else. And all that time you spend on all the emotional garbage you could have forgiven and gotten on with life. But pastor, you say, I can't. Well, we all know that because none of us can It's why he gives us his spirit. Remember, he says, when I go up there, I'm going to send you a a comforter, a helper. He gives us his word. He gives us prayer. He gives us the body of Christ where we come together. But what you're really saying by I can't is you can't get over the emotional pain. But see, even when you do not feel like it, you forgive And you act and treat that person as if you have forgiven them. And the emotion will catch up to the action. I think one of the key reasons why the body of Christ is dormant today is because we carry offenses 
in our hearts. And it weighs us down and it makes the bride unattractive. Let me challenge you this morning to say, why not start a revolution of beauty? Remember what the lady did in that act of worship and he said, it's a beautiful thing? You want GBC to have a powerful witness? I think if we just do two things, the world will sit up and take notice and saying they live so different. We want to have that kind of freedom. The first is just, can I say this, be nice? <laughs> you know, our culture of entitlement and offense and disrespect and narcissism, it's all about me. And all we see today in the news is this escalating violence. I mean, people don't know how to be nice anymore. Even when you pay them, they don't know how to be nice because they think they're entitled to more than they're getting. Just be nice. Secondly, practice forgiveness like God intended. Let go of the offenses. Let go of all that kind of thing that just drags the body of Christ to a place where it's on the streets, living homeless, dumpster diving, instead of sitting in the place that Christ created around a table of welcome. Now I want us to turn to a difficult passage. And it illustrates all this stuff we're talking about. It's in the Old Testament. You can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 15 a while. But what it takes is, it takes this stuff about being nice and forgiveness and, and being generous and puts it in very practical terms. By practical, I'm saying, he says, listen, here's what you ought to do. Now, in this passage, the author expands this whole Sabbath year principle. Sabbath year being every seven years, they were to let the land lie fallow, not work it, not plow it. All the poor people could take from it. And they expand what they were supposed to do in this Sabbath year, just not simply let the land go, but there was other parts of this. Now, when we read this, I want you to look at the intent. I want you to look at God's heart in this matter. Verse 1, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. A release is to cancel debt, to forgive the debt, to let it go. But you might sit there and say, but it's not fair. They owe me. I'm entitled. They borrowed it from me. God says, listen, every seven years, you know this coming up. So when you met, made the loan, you know at the end of seven years, you're going to let it go. Verse 2. And this is the manner of release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not expect it of his neighbor. His brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Now note, this is the Lord's time. And how many times do we say everything's the Lord? And what we have to understand this morning is things are different in God's kingdom. One of the key differences is he cancels unpayable debts. Our sin is a debt far more serious than any financial transaction. And you see, he's trying to make a visible witness of something he does on a far greater scale. But you know, our debt sin doesn't quite feel as bad as it is, does it? Why? Because our idol is money. And we, 
We don't think biblically about sin. And we are most unforgiving when somebody rips us off of our stuff. Verse 3. If a foreigner, you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. Again, God's people live differently. That's what that is illustrating. They do it that way out there. You play by their rules. Inside my kingdom, you play by my rules. Verse 4, but there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, be, being careful to do this, all this commandment that I command you today. Now, do you, you understand this morning that our ability to eliminate poverty is directly related to our spirituality? I mean, that's what that's saying. If we obey God, if we follow his rules, if we see differently people and circumstance and stuff, if we see it his way, that's how we eliminate poverty. You know, Mother Teresa coming to America made this statement. I've never seen such poverty as I see here. See, she had a different set of eyes. Take the country of Haiti. No one would argue it's one of the poorest countries in the world. But again, going back to how we think, we think sometimes if we just simply give money to a cause, that will eliminate poverty. Well, Haiti receives more aid, more financial aid per capita, per person, than any other country in the world. So it's like the more money we give it, the poorer it gets. Good intentions help short-term, but we end up damaging long-term. See, generosity and aid and everything else is a spiritual matter. I don't know if you ever heard of a book called When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor in Yourself. Anybody ever see that book? No? Who would like to read it? Okay, right there. You know the rule, right? Rule is you read it and pass it on. But do we understand that if we're going to eliminate and alleviate, we've got to view it the way God views it. I mean, Bob Lupton studies third world poverty. And uh, he talks about this cycle all the time. He says, the first wave of financial aid, there's gratitude. The second wave, there's anticipation. The third wave, there's entitlement. And the fourth wave, there is dependence. I came across a sign the other week, and we know this. National Park Service says this. Please do not feed the animals. The animals will grow dependent on the handouts, and they will never learn to take care of themselves. That's on our National Parks signs. Now, please hear what I'm saying. This does not mean we stop being generous with our stuff. I mean, that's one aspect of generosity. But we so often forget, and what I'm trying to communicate this morning is that that poverty is a spiritual issue as well. Generosity is a spiritual issue. It's a heart condition. It's a lifestyle. And that's what God's communicating in this passage. Look at verse 6. For the Lord your God will bless you as he's promised you. He shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. 
You shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. I mean, God knows what greed does. What does greed do? It causes us to borrow. It causes us to go in debt. And once we're in debt, we are under their control. God also knows what contentment does. It helps us to live free. It allows us to be generous. I mean, we've seen that in our own country. A book that was written back in the 80s by Arthur Brooks, books entitled Who Really Cares? Fascinating study if you're an account because it's just full of numbers and statistics and everything else. But let me break this down. Here's what he found out in terms of generosity with our stuff. He had four classifications of wealth. There was the non-working poor and there was the working poor. They both made the same amount of money. One worked for it, the other one didn't. There was the middle class and the wealthy. So there was four categories. And based upon the percentage of income they gave to charitable organizations, here's what he discovered. The most generous group of people were the working poor. The most ungenerous group of people were the non-working poor. Same amount of money, same amount of income. One was extremely generous, one was not. Jesus says it this way, you can't love God and money. Paul says the love of money leads to all kinds of evil. It's not how much you have, it's how much you desire to have that is not yours. And this passage here in Deuteronomy is is what I call tearing down idols therapy. And what God's trying to communicate to Israel is this, only let God rule over you. Change my heart, O Lord. We start saying, I don't know if I want that kind of change. Look at verse 7. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you keep hearing that phrase, God gave you, God gave you, God gave you. I mean, it's a lesson we need to learn. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Doesn't tell us why he's poor. Could be his own set of circumstances. He's just saying that's the situation. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year release is near. I don't know if I'm going to give him this money because I know I'm going to have to let it go. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cries to the Lord against you. And what's it say there? And you be guilty of sin. See, that's an ungenerous attitude. It says, I don't know if I want to loan him that money that he needs because I'm going to lose it in six months. We don't view sin that way, do we? Verse 10, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give it to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, she shall serve, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year, you shall let him go. 
free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You see what God's saying here? Give generously. Give them more than they came to you with. I mean, God's kind of really busting on us, isn't he? Verse 14, you shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give it to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. Here's some practical principles. We already said generosity is a lifestyle. Here's a second. Generosity is a matter of the heart. I hope you picked that up through Deuteronomy. Don't do it grudgingly. Don't do it ill will. Don't. He says, you know what? Well, Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. If giving is a spiritual matter and generosity is a spiritual matter and a lot of people are lacking faith, guess what? Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's just not a financial promise. That's a promise about being free, about joy and peace and love and forgiveness, all those aspects that he gives to us. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That simply means that the offering time in a church should be a happy hour. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Third principle, remember that God has redeemed you. Remember that passage in Deuteronomy? Remember, remember that he is taking you out of the land of Egypt. He's redeemed you. We have to remember that he's redeemed us through Christ. Just not once a month during communion. It's every single day we wake up. Paul says, think on these things. Renew your minds. Focus on the author and finish of our faith. Next, relationships are more important than money. I didn't hear a single amen on that one. (laughs) I'm going to say it again, and I hope I get a few amens. Relationships are more important than money. Let's start a revolution of respect, of letting go of our offenses because relationships are more important than all that other stuff and just simply being nice. Now, here's how we're going to close. We're going to pray a prayer together. And yes, we'll be reciting or reading this prayer together, but listen and, and realize this when you're praying this. Does God answer prayer? does. So when we pray this, think about how he's going to answer that prayer through you. Okay? Let's pray together. We'll have it on the screen in a second. Here it is. Let's pray. Gracious God, give us generous hearts to share whatever gift it is that you have given to us. To acknowledge you as the giver of all good gifts. To give without counting the cost to share without expecting something in return. To be wise in the way of caring for ourselves and others. To hold all of our treasures and values with open hands. To have gospel priorities 
and to align our life, love, and time in their lives, to be gracious and unbegrudgingly in our giving, to recognize the abundance of blessings in each passing day, to know the freedom that comes with true generosity, to accept our talents, whether many or few, and to use them in service of others, to grow in giving thanks for everything, to be happy with having what we need and wise enough to know what it is that we want and do not need, to fall more deeply in love with the God of all generosity so that our hearts are strong enough to give away freely whatever is asked. O gracious God, who generously lavishes our lives with goodness, create in our hearts a deep center of gratitude, a center that grows so strong in its thanksgiving that sharing freely of our treasures becomes the pattern of our existence. May we always be grateful for your reaching into our lives with surprises of joy, growth, and unconditional love. Amen. Go in God's grace this week and his generosity and let go of the offenses and be nice. You're dismissed.